in a series, Relationship or Religion. And the subtitle of this series, if you haven't been a part of this series, is called Confronting the Chains of Legalism. And I don't know about you, but there's sometimes, I've been in church experiences, come across church people, where it just, I get the tendency that sometimes people get a little legalistic. So we've been talking about, man, let's, let's, let's summarize the Christian faith, because I just believe that Jesus has really set up his church to be very simple, but many times in the church, we complicate things. So we've been playing off this idea that, can you summarize the Christian faith in two to four words? And I think the best definition I've ever heard is that Jesus wants relationship, not religion, right? And so we've been playing off this whole idea, and we've been working our, our, our way through in, in terms of confronting this idea that there's one Bible, and so many different people get so many different conclusions based off of this one Bible. There's certain verses, there's certain parts of the Bible that kind of sometimes make us cringe. But for you and I, man, who's to, who is to stop somebody from Google searching those areas of the Bible, and then us as people who are identifying as followers of Jesus, being able to explain away what God was doing in those specific certain situations. We have a lot of atheists. We have a lot of people that in our day and age that they'll open specific stories in the Bible out of context and point to those being the reasons they could never worship the God that we worship and call to be our high king, our priest, our everything, the lover of our souls. So we've been playing with this idea, and in the last really six weeks in this series, we've, we've, we've made some conclusions, and, and kind of the, the most recent conclusions that, that we've kind of made upon this idea is that I, I believe that each and every one of us, we are average Joe type of people. Not all of us are Bible scholars. Not all of us are theologians. So I just really believe that you and I, we're average Joes who just want to do good. We want to be people that partner with the grand things. We want to have purpose in life. And what we've realized is that when you interpret the Bible, there's so many different ways that we can interpret. But the most helpful way that we can interpret the Bible for an average Joe Bible reader is this idea of covenants. That God acts in accordance with the covenant that he is in. When we begin to unlock the Bible, read the Bible through the lens of the covenants, we can begin to understand certain seasons that God displays throughout human history and understanding how they relate practically to us today. So we've been looking at five major covenants that exist in the Bible, and we're talking about these covenants chronologically because unfortunately for us, we don't receive the Bible. If you go to the store and buy a Bible, uh, it, it's not chronological, and we're used to being people that read the book from left to right, any book you pick up, and unfortunately, that's not how the Bible's organized. So there's certain chronological areas of the Bible, but for us, it's really helpful to think about the big picture, overarching story of the Bible. And throughout the Bible, chronologically, we have five major covenants that God makes with humanity. The first one being the Noahic covenant, which we talked about a few weeks ago, the covenant that God makes with Noah and promises to never flood the earth ever again, right? Last, last time we were together uh, in the series, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant, this, God, this uh, covenant that God makes with this man Abraham. And he says, hey, through your family, I'm going to expand your family, and I'm going to build a nation. And through this nation, uh, this nation is going to be a means to a global end. We're going to bless the entire earth. Third is what we would call the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant that God makes with Noah, which is actually the covenant that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is a massive uh, covenant, which my brain hurts from studying uh, this week. So uh, hang with me. Uh, and, and then lastly, we're going to be talking about the Davidic covenant as we continue in this series, the covenant that God makes with David. And then finally, the new covenant, the one that we have inherited as followers of Jesus. And I just truly believe this. Once again, when you unlock the covenants, you unlock faith in a way where it becomes very clear and it becomes very, very simple. 
But sometimes covenants complicate the way that sometimes we perceive or interpret our faith. So this morning we are in part seven of our series, and we're focusing this morning on what we would call the old covenant. Or many times what the, the, the first two-thirds of the Bible is referred to as the new or the old covenant, the Old Testament, right? Because surrounding this literature is this massive covenant that God makes. And it's kind of like for us today, how, how, how do we relate to that? So with that being said, we're going to be doing something uh, in December. We're, we're, we're still looking at hammering a date down. We're going to be doing something called Conversation Sunday. Once this, once this whole thing's done, once we've kind of talked about covenants, we've talked about the series that God wants a relationship with us, I know that there's many questions, and um, once again, many times church feels so much like a monologue. So we're going to have a conversation. So if you go to our website, parkastudychurch.com, you go to our events, there's a little question box you can fill out, an anonymous question. We're going to be addressing questions that you, you have about, man, maybe this seemed a little bit unclear, or maybe there's some bigger picture, picture questions you have about God, and we're going to just dedicate one whole Sunday to just talk about those questions, and we're going to do spontaneous questions for our new guests that come. It's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I just believe that church needs to be more of a conversation, because many times we're not talking about the topics that are actually relevant. We're talking about certain topics in a vacuum, and there's things that are pressing in our everyday lives that we need to have conversation about. We need to see life through a biblical worldview. How does God feel about X, Y, Z? So we're going to open the door and, and really begin to ingrain that in our church culture, which I'm so excited about. Let's pray as we begin. That was kind of a mouthful. Now we're going to get started. Okay, here we go. Lord, thank you so much for your grace on this church. Lord, thank you, Lord, that your, your word says that you inhabit the praises of your people. So, Lord, I'm so thankful that the praises were big this morning in our time of musical worship. And, Lord, we know your presence is here. You promised to be with us personally, but you also make a promise to us corporately. So, God, move in our midst this morning, Lord. What needs to be spoken into the lives of our hearts, Lord, would you speak? God, would you transcend? Would this not just be a religious experience that we have this morning, but will we understand there's a God who loves us, who seeks us, who wants to speak something so specific into each and every one of our hearts? Lord, would we be open to that this morning? In Jesus' name. And everybody said. Amen, amen. Okay, so if we are chronologically moving through the Bible, through the book of Genesis, into the second book of the Bible, Exodus, which is where we're going to begin this morning, we know that there has been about 2,800 years of human history where no law has existed. Now, that's not to say that God has given people instructions, but there is no what we would call law, which is referred to the Bi in the Bible as law, a list of different instructions, which many people refer back to that were Israel's laws that they they basically related to God with. And this really gets, begins to get unpacked for us in understanding why in the book of 2 Corinthians, it talks about that the law brought death. Because let's look at a, there's a, there's a very mind-blowing observation this morning that I just want to make as we begin. Before the law was given at Sinai in this event that we're about to talk about this morning as God makes this covenant with, with, with Moses, right? Um, let's, let's look at a few situations. And, and there's this... There's something that changes. So in Exodus chapter 15, if you're reading the Bible chronologically, you understand that the Israelites were grumbling at the start of their journey out of Egypt, and it led to no punishment. They were in slavery. God leads them out. Well, they were grumbling. They are like, even though they got released and they're free, they, they grumbled. And, and there was no punishment. Exodus chapter 16, we see the Israelites grumbling about the manna and quail, and this led to no punishment. If you're familiar with that story. Exodus 16. There's a Sabbath violation which resulted in a reprimand. God's saying, hey, I created the universe six days. On the seventh, I rested. He's like, this is going to be a good rhythm for your life, right? And they, they just, they didn't do it, right? So it just, it resulted in a reprimand. Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites grumble over no water which led to no punishment. Well, then we get to this giving of the law 
And here's what happens after in the books to follow. Similar situations. In Numbers 11, the Israelites grumbling led to a destroying fire. Numbers chapter 11, 33 through 34, the Israelites grumbled about the manna and the quail, and it led to a killing plague. In Numbers chapter 15, there was a Sabbath violation, and it resulted in death by stoning. In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites grumbled over food and water, which led to the Lord sending deadly serpents among the people. There is some sort of event that happens in between these chapters that changed something. And we understand in 2 Corinthians that the law brought death, which helps us understand this, there's this event of the law and the giving of the law that changed something. And it wasn't something that was good. It was something that was a scenario that we need to pay close attention to because it seems like it was a game changer in the way that God and humans related to one another. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 19 this morning, starting with verse 1. It's going to be a lot of scripture this morning, but here's, here's we, we need to be thorough. We got to be thorough. So to hang with me this morning as we look at this big picture idea of God and the way that he relates to you and I and how it's going to apply to us in our everyday lives. Uh, Exodus chapter 19, starting with verse 1. It says, on the, verse, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountains and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, this is it, verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You know what's interesting about this phrase, kingdom of priests? This isn't a phrase that in the Old Testament, when you read it, it ever comes up. It's actually a very New Testament idea, a new covenant idea. The covenant that Jesus set up, we have many verses that, that talk about we are a priesthood of all believers. Meaning that we, we don't need priests to make sacrifices for us, but we are a priesthood. It's interesting because in the scripture, this is what God is offering. He's saying, hey, be, be my priesthood. And many times when we think of this idea of a priesthood of all believers, we always think about it in the New Testament. But here it is. Here is this phrase. Here is this offer. And once again, what we understand and what is happening here is God is making an offer of a covenant. And as we talked about last time we were together, three main types of covenants. So we're going to do a little bit of review. What God was offering here is what would be called a grant covenant. This is an awesome covenant. This is an awesome situation, that agreement that two parties would get into with one another. A covenant when a greater and lesser person came into covenant and the greater one took on all, all, all the obligations. The lesser one only needed to receive the covenant. So it's amazing. God was offering, hey, have relationship. Have direct access. Like I'm offering this. Be the priesthood. Be the priesthood. Not just priest, but the priesthood. Be mine. Have direct relationship. And let's read what, what happens when it continues. Exodus chapter 19, verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together and said, we'll do everything the Lord has said. Awesome. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, you want this? Like here, you just got to follow a few instructions, right? They're like, we're down. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow 
have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They're to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. And then he gives a specific instruction. They're getting prepared. They're preparing for this covenant ceremony that's about to happen. It says, only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. God's saying, hey, come on up. Come on up to the mountain. Approach. I looked up that word specifically. That word in the Greek, many times it's translated approach here. It means come, to climb, to go up, right? He's inviting them to come up the mountain. Saying, I want to have relationship with all of you. Be the priesthood. Receive this covenant that I want to enter into with you. Be it. And then we move on a few verses later in Exodus 19. It says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. Can you imagine the scene? God's glorious power. Oh my gosh. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. There it is. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So here it is, the, 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 the trumpet blast, the moment that they've been waiting for. And there's something that happens in this moment. And in between this verse, 19 and 20, there's some, there's some background things that we need to kind of get into. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a retelling of this story. Where Moses retells this story, and it gives us some insight into what was happening. So let's look at this really quickly, and, and move ahead into Deuteronomy chapter 5 as he's retelling this story. Here it is. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, speaking to the people, this is Moses speaking to the people, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. This is, they're watching Moses have this dialogue, right, that we read about. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? So this is what they say. Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Go, Moses. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. If we back up a little bit. In this chapter, Deuteronomy 5, 2 through 5, it helps the context. Let's understand the context of what Moses was telling them about. It says this, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, which is another name used interchangeably with Mount Sinai. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. God was offering relationship for his people. Be the priesthood. We don't learn about this whole benefit of being the priesthood until the new covenant. He's inviting, and what do the people say? Actually, we don't want direct relationship. Can you be the mediator? Moses, can you be the guy who becomes the person who's the person who's in between, the mediator between us? Because for whatever reason, as we're going to talk about, God's people declined the invitation to go up, to climb, to receive the covenant that God was offering. It says this in Exodus chapter 19. So we pick up 
where we left off on the story before we kind of got some background information in Deuteronomy. So it says the Lord descended to the top of the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of, or many, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. It's interesting. Between verses 19 and 20, we see God adjusting. God adjusting the invitation to come, receive. And we understand through Deuteronomy, we understand why. There was fear being filled with the people. So God adjusted. said, okay, I'll, I invite, keep them down there. I'm going to invite Moses, you up. I'm going to invite Aaron up to be the mediators between myself and my people. And this is where we enter into Exodus chapter 20, where we hear this whole story about the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting about the Ten Commandments and the ceremony that then happened is it represents a type of covenant called a kinship covenant. So let's talk about this type of covenant, a kinship covenant. This is a covenant when two equal parties come together, as in a marriage. Each party takes on a small list of obligations in the covenant. This type of covenant had a small set of obligations and was very evenly divided between the two parties. A kinship covenant was also referred to as a parity covenant. Now, what's unique about this and what many scholars have identified is that this kinship covenant obviously wasn't like other covenants because we're talking about a covenant between a God and people. Many times these were two different parties who represented people and people. And actually, um, up here on the, on the screen, Typically, this is how it would function. There would be a partner one and the God of partner one. It's like, okay, here's, here's my people. This is my God. I'm getting into covenant with the party over here. This is my God. And basically, if we ever get into conflict or if I ever break the covenant agreement that we get into, my God over here will punish your God or will punish you people. So it's interesting because this is a unique situation. There's no other situation of a covenant that many people have found that represents God getting into covenant, a kinship covenant with his people. So this, what this represented was something very unique where God was not only the God, the partner, but he also was required to be the punisher. He was the partner and the punisher because he was the God. There was no other gods they were in covenant with. And this was a covenant not between two tribes of people, but between a people group and a God himself. And it's very interesting because if you do the research on a kinship covenant, the type of ceremony that then happened in the Bible, which we're calling the events of the giving of the Ten Commandments, is paralleled with this idea of what a kinship covenant ceremony looked like. This is why the Ten Commandments were written down on two separate slabs. Not separately, but one front and back, the other front and back, where both covenants were to be given to one part of the party. Each one would get one. Well, for Moses, he got to keep both of them. They placed it in the ark because of this unique situation he got into with this God and this covenant with a God who's claiming to be this creator and God of the universe who has freed them from slavery and so on and so forth. We push down the events of Israel's history through the rest of the Bible. But what prompted the Israelites to want mediation versus relationship? Why, why would they act that way? Well, we know that many times throughout the Bible up to this point, God has tested. God has tested people to see of their faithfulness. 
doesn't take away from his faithfulness. But we also understand the context of where Israel was coming from. For hundreds of years, they lived in slavery. For hundreds of years, they looked at other gods, lowercase g gods, and saw the way that those gods were abusive towards the people that were loyal to them. And now we have a new father, creator God, father God coming along, inviting them into relationship. And here's what happens when you're an abused person and your mindset gets skewed. You begin to apply that abuse to a person who's actually good, who's actually safe, who actually is going to advocate for you. So without, without getting so deep into it, we can understand the context of why Israel would be apprehensive to follow through when God was testing them. And God said, okay, it's okay. We'll get into this thing called a kinship covenant, but it's going to have to look a little bit different because this is based on the people's request. So we know that the Ten Commandments are then given corporately. We pick up in Exodus chapter 20, starting with verse 18. It says, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trum trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen once again. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And the after this kinship ceremony of the Ten Commandments where this covenant was made with God and his people, with a mediator, as he had adjusted from this grant covenant that was being offered as a priesthood, we, we understand that God from that point on does ne never audibly speaks corporately to the people of Israel. From that point on. And sometimes we can wonder why, but we, we know exactly why. God was offering to have personal relationship with them corporately, but now a mediator was chosen. And we do not see God speaking corporately to Israel from that point on. We see it work as, out as a mediator in between Moses on behalf of God speaking. So kind of move along the biblical narrative up on this next slide. So we, we're finishing off the book of Exodus. We're just kind of jumping through things really quickly here just for the sake of time. And then uh, fr from the book of Exodus on, we move to the book of Leviticus, third book of the Bible. And in the book of Leviticus, we, it's basically a guidebook for the priests and, and different animal laws. We move ahead to the book of Numbers, and there's a large census that's taken for the people of Israel at the beginning, and they celebrate their first Passover celebration. So they've been there for a year celebrating when God released them. Uh, from Egypt, the slavery in Egypt, and in, in the book of Numbers, they begin to journey towards the promised land that God promised to give them, which was based out of a, a covenant previously that, that, that God had made with God's people. And then we get to the book of Deuteronomy. And the De book of Deuteronomy is another interesting shift, because in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a shift that happens because the covenant has to be renewed. You know, it was common for people, if two kings were in a kinship covenant together, Hang with me. But one of the kings was a terrible covenant partner. When that king died and it was time to make a new covenant with his successor, the other king would most likely ask for a change in the arrangement since the previous one had not worked well. He could not change the covenant while the previous, uh, while in partnership with the first king, but when his successor came along, he could change the covenant. This is exactly what happened between God and Joshua. We know that Israel receives a new leader, Joshua, Watch Moses dies. And what this meant is the covenant, there had to be a reassessment. Did this covenant partner do what they were supposed to do on their end of the bargain? And if you read that section of the Bible we just kind of skimmed over, here's what you realize. The people of God 
are unfaithful after being unfaithful after being unfaithful. In fact, right after, right, the laws are given, the Ten Commandments, what do we see? We see the people make a golden calf. They worship the calf, right? They just they don't have any other gods before you, me. Boom, immediately, right? Humans continue to be humans. I love those commercials that show people just make mistakes. It's like, we're all humans, you know? I'm like, I relate to that. You know what I mean? Like, I ain't perfect, right? So here's the, the storyline, right? Humanity continuing to not be perfect, Continuing to roll down this line of understanding that they fall short of a perfect standard, God's glorious standard. They're horrible, imperfect covenant partners when it comes to God. But God has been placed in this position of being the partner and unfortunately the punisher, right? So they had to reassess. They couldn't keep the same thing that was going on. There had to be a reassessment. And the book of Deuteronomy is that reassessment. It's interesting. We're going to look at the, at, at the structure of the book of Deuteronomy, and it's broken up into five main sections, right? Actually, let's go back to that previous slide. So we, there's this kinship covenant that God has been with, with his people, and now it's about to transition in the book of Deuteronomy because of their unfaithfulness to what we would call a vassal covenant. This is the least covenant you want to get into because it's the least advantageous for a person who is unfaithful, for a person who is, has their back against the wall because of their unfaithfulness. So let's talk about this type of covenant really quickly. This is a covenant when a greater and lesser person come into covenant based on the greater one's ability to destroy the lesser one. Instead of destruction, the greater one offered the lesser one safety in exchange for the ability to collect taxes and tribute, take slaves and so forth. Typically this happened when a king conquered a nation and offered the people of that nation their lives in exchange for a level of servitude to his harsh rule. As a result, in this covenant, the greater person had all the power, and the lesser person had to fulfill a large number of obligations. A vassal covenant was also referred to as a suzerain covenant. So this is it. This is the reassessment. This is the, we were on equal standard, standards, and trying to fulfill this, right? God's, God's people with God, well, they were unfaithful. So now, because of the transition of leadership, there has to be an assessment of saying, that wasn't working out. The kinship wasn't working out. There's no other choice but for it to transition into a vassal covenant, do we see what's happening here because of humanity, because of people falling short, because of our imperfection, right? There was something great being offered, and slowly, because of humanity, we got ourselves, or the people of God, got themselves into a situation that wasn't very advantageous for them. So let's go back to the book of Deuteronomy. The structure of this book, if you do research on vassal covenants, represents what a vassal covenant agreement looks like. The way that this book is designed, it's broken up into five main parts, which parallel with what a typical vassal covenant is broken up into in five major parts. So let's talk about this for a second. So the book of Deuteronomy, the preamble, Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 5. Every one of these uh, ancient vassal covenants treaties started with a preamble telling the date when the meeting took place and who the mediator of the covenant was. It served as an introduction. So that's present as you look, read through the book of Deuteronomy which a lot of people are like, it's so boring. But this brings so much life to understanding what's happening here. Number two, the historical prologue, the first four chapters. Next is the covenant history or the history of how the two parties had walked together in covenant previously, including whether or not e either of the partners was unfaithful to a previous covenant. Well, that one's going to be obvious, right? Hence why we have Deuteronomy 1 through 4. Number three is the stipulations and obligations, Deuteronomy 5 through 26. This section lists what is required for living inside the vassal covenant. It is always the largest part of the five-part structure. This is why Deuteronomy contains chapter after chapter of rules. Are, these are the stipulations of the covenant. 
once again, people are reading it, they're like, oh, my gosh, like, this is just rule after rule. Like, what does this mean for me, right? Number four, the final sanctions in the covenant ratification. This is the covenant agreement where the lesser king comes into, into agreement with the greater king's stipulations. They have to agree to it, which they do, the people of God. And then number five, the covenant continuity and the dynasty succession in Deuteronomy 31 through 34. Here it says who the successor of the covenant will be. It lists who is dying and who is taking that person's place. So this is the transition between Moses and Joshua as leaders of God's people. And this is a book, the book of Deuteronomy, that once again, you Google search some harsh statements, crazy things in the Bible. This is where people like to kind of helicopter over, right? This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, blessings and curses, right? This is a chapter that people just, people cherry pick from and be like, how can I worship that God? You know what I'm saying? But once again, the covenant, the understanding of covenant and how it applies to us today becomes so much more clear. You pull out weird laws. You pull out the stipulations of a very specific vassal covenant that God's people had gotten themselves into. And people claim, your God is a crazy person. Why is he okay with all this crazy stuff? Maybe first and foremost, because it's not about you. It's history. Let's start there and let's move. For example, Richard Dawkins, one of the most well-known atheists in the world, wrote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanti infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I didn't even pronounce all those words right. Because he's using big words to describe how horrible this God of the Bible seems. There's a really, another humorous example in a letter written to Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Any of you guys like my mom who used to listen to Dr. Laura back in the day? Oh, you guys don't want to admit it. Whatever. Um, an anonymous writer sent her the following letter based on her attempts to be consistent as an Orthodox Jew. According to the law. He responds to her statement that for an Orthodox Jew, according to Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22... Homosexuality is an abomination and is not ever permissible. So he responds, says this. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I've learned a great deal from your show and try to share the knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it to be an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some other elements of God's law and how to follow them. Leviticus 25.44 states that I may possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims that this only applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you clarify? Why can't I own Canadians? I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? I know that I am allowed no contact with women while she is in her period of menstrual uncleanliness, as it says in Le Leviticus 15. The problem is, how do I tell? I've tried asking, but most women take offense. When I burn a bowl on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, as it says in Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath, Exodus 35.2 clearly states, he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or should I ask the police to do it? 
A friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, Leviticus 11.10, it is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Are there degrees of abomination? Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room here? Most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples, even though this is express, expressly forbidden by Leviticus 19.27. So how should they die? I know from Leviticus 11.6-8 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but may I still play football if I wear gloves? My uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19.19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments of two different kinds of thread, cotton and polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Leviticus 24, 10 through 16. Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with the people who sleep with their in-laws, as it says in Leviticus 2014? I know you have studied these things extensively and thus enjoy considerable expertise in such matters, so I'm confident you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. Your devoted disciple and adoring fan, AJC. P.S., it would be a dang shame if we couldn't own a Canadian. Do we understand the point here? We got to be consistent. A lot of Christians cherry pick out of a section of scripture and begin to apply it to a covenant that does not even apply to us today. You cannot be a person that says, no tattoos while you eat bacon. But this is how the church has communicated to our culture today. Picking and choosing out of a covenant that really is not applicable to the covenant that we are in today based on what Jesus did for us. Hence why this, this the, the, the surname for this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is the old covenant. Because there is a new covenant. There is a better covenant, the book of Hebrews communicates. Because the old law has become obsolete. We don't think things through most often as we maybe should. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, if that's how you self-identify, so I, I, I think we need to be a little bit more thoughtful in sometimes how we, we apply the Bible into our lives and into the world that we live in today. We have to remember that we are not under the law, but we're under Jesus. The difference between the new covenant and the old is that God does not curse us for our poor decisions. Unlike us, the Israelites lived under the weight of the reality that if they disobeyed the covenant, God would curse them. Not so much based on the gracious covenant that Jesus instilled when he died for us on the cross and introduced a new reality under his kingdom lordship. That no matter who and what type of person we are, based on his amazing grant covenant of saying, place your faith in me. That's all that's required. Let me cover your imperfections with my blood. Let me give you a new identity. Let you live the best life you could ever live. That simple. And some people would say, okay, the laws are still really strange, Pastor. I read this and I understand that I, it's, I'm having a hard time relating. But this is normal for us because guess what? We live in a, a, a Western society in 2018 trying to relate to uh, a very ancient culture 
that existed thousands of years ago. Societies function much different than our society looks like today. You base that idea off of technology alone, look at 10 years ago and how our technology has advanced and how we relate to each other differently. This is why as a church we have to keep moving. We have to see the opportunity. A great quote that I read, I, I posted on Facebook this last week when I just saw a lot of different opinions on Halloween. We can complain about the world or we can actually go reach it. As God's called us to do. But many of us, we still straddle in both covenants. We're still living in two realities. And when you live in the one with all these laws on your shoulder, you can't accept the freedom that God gives through what Jesus has done for us. You might say, well, the laws are still strange to me, Pastor. Well, we need to understand this. Laws, like are introduced in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, extensively, first with the 10, 603 more added to it, 613 Orthodox Jewish laws called the Old Covenant. This pattern of rule books was actually common during that day. This is how societies functioned uh, and how they related to one another was by different laws, code of laws. Many other countries around Israel had rule books and served as an early attempt at civilization and civil law. One of the most well-known rule books from that period is something that we would call the Code of Hammurabi. The phrase is going to be up on the screen. This is key. This is essential. This is one of the best archaeological finds that we have in terms of a code or laws and how people function within their society. This code of law had 282 laws. In like fashion, God gave his people a rule book full of laws that they could follow. What most Christians do not realize is that the laws God gave his people were very similar to the ancient laws of the surrounding peoples. Except that God's law improved on the other laws. He took what society was doing, and you know what he actually did? He extended his heart, same God, yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ, but the heart of Jesus, the heart of God. What is God like when Jesus showed up, right? That heart, that same heart from the character of God, that grace was applied to this covenant that they said yes to, they got into. God is saying yes to his grace and applying so much grace to this list of laws that God had instilled within his people. Once again, we are like, I don't understand it. But in the culture of that time, a lot of these laws extended the heart of God because they were gracious compared to the societies and how the civil laws functioned during that time. For example, if a Hittite, a Hittite country robber was punished by having his hand cut off, in Israel, the robber was punished by having to pay back four times what he stole. But he gets to keep his hand. In that day, physical mutilation was a common punishment, and the Code of Hammurabi includes at least 16 punishments that involved mutilation. By contrast, none of the laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy instituted mutilation as part of the law. In this way, the law was an upgrade from those of the nations around them. People get so confused because they look back at the law, and it obscures what God is actually like. But does that apply to us as the modern average Joe who's trying to live his life, a life with purpose, following after God, how God thinks about the world, and how God wants to transform the world that we live in? And this is why the majority of the New Testament is addressing people that are trying to mix these two ideas together. But we got a lot of religious type people in churches that are still doing it, even though the majority of the New Testament is addressing false prophets and people that are trying to infiltrate this new thinking of freedom by locking people in shackles according to the old way of thinking. Let me give you an example, one that's going to help be really helpful to the way that we relate to this. 2 Corinthians, 
Paul is writing to a Corinthian church, and he's addressing that there are people that are claiming to be God's followers, his apostles, that are telling people that they need to follow the Jewish laws and they need to follow the laws in, in terms of what Jesus instilled within his ministry. So his whole letter is addressing this church to say, watch out for these false people that are mixing these ideas together. Helps us understand, once again, in context, rather than just cherry picking, kind of like, well, that verse sounds very nice. No, these were actual situations because this needed to be addressed because the church could get so diluted and complicated and away from the heart of God and what he displayed through Jesus and the benefits of what we get to inherit in human history today in 2018. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. So these false people, they, 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 they use the opportunity to say, well, I'm this type of person. I'm a high person in society. So you should trust this idea that I'm saying we need to mix these old laws and these new laws together. But he's saying, no, no, no. It's written on your hearts through what God did when the Holy Spirit was given to you through what Jesus had already done. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Here it is. Not on tablets of stone. That's a reference to the Ten Commandments. That's a reference to the kinship covenants, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. There it is. Verse 7, now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory. Remember that glory that all the people were so afraid of? So that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of his glory. Transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Woo! We're living in glory days, everybody, in 2018. And sometimes it feels like we're living in doom and gloom party. Verse 9, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Relationship, relationship, relationship. We're a renovation in progress. God sends his Holy Spirit to those who place their faith in Jesus, and he begins to do a renovating work within us. Yeah, 
we, we, we're, we're used to living under the old master, the old. We're used to uh, living under the weight of the world, much like the Jewish people did when they were trying to understand how they now related to what God was doing under the new covenants. But we are to throw those shackles to the floor and live in the freedom in which is offered through God, through what his son Jesus has done for us on the cross. And he's patient with us. And he chooses to walk with love and loving care in relationship with each and every one of us. Although we fail time and time again, he picks us back up. And as, when you choose daily to be in relationship with you, he encourages you in your darkest moments. He says, when, when you're weak, I'm strong. We read the New Testament. We read the benefits of what it means to live in this new covenant of how God relates to humanity based on what he did through Jesus. And it's a life of abundance. It's a life of freedom. It's a life that looks at this world and says, we are not enemies of the world, but we're going to go infiltrate through the love of God what God wants to see happen and transform our culture and our lives and communities to look a lot more like heaven. Let's give people a taste of heaven people feel like in our day and age they're living in hell the law is not God's heart the heart of God is displayed through the new covenant let's look at a, let's conclude this morning with a few verses it's interesting in the Levitical law Leviticus Jesus says or God says love your neighbor as yourself I love that you know Jesus makes reference to that when, the, when a Jewish man asks him hey like how do I relate to God he says well Love me, love, love the Lord your God, but, but also love your neighbor as yourself. But as Jesus' ministry continues, here's what I know. There's days where I don't love myself very well. When my standard becomes the standard of loving, here's what I know about love. It becomes very inconsistent. It becomes very conditional based on how I know to love myself, right? And this is, I love this. In the, in the book of John, you know, what, you know what Jesus says? He clarifies this. He says, my command is this, one command. Here it is. Love each other as I have loved you. Your definition of love yeah, that can be kind of contingent based upon your emotions, how you feel. Here's how I'm going to define love. Perfect love up on a cross. I'm going to die for my enemies. I'm going to die for those who don't deserve it. I'm going to lay my life down for people who are willing to spit, flog, kill me. And I'm going to display a new definition of love. Do that. One thing. Do it. Do it. See how well you do it. I don't know about you. But I have not been able to fill this definition of love very well. But here's what I do know. With relationship with Jesus, man, God gets a hold of my heart when I, when I do something that I'm not supposed to. As a shepherd, as a pastor, man, when I screw up, man, God gets a hold of my heart through the Holy Spirit, knocks on my heart and says, you know what? I don't think that was much like my love being displayed. This is one thing, and it's really simple, but how many of you guys know that's one very hard thing to follow as an imperfect person? But that's why God gives us his helper his Holy Spirit to help us along the way. God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for ongoing, engaging relationship with every single one of his created humans on earth. God is so great. God is so beautiful. We end on this. We always end on this definition for legalism. Strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. It's time for those chains to fall to the floor. Jesus wants relationship, not religion. All he asks, one thing, 
You want to be righteous? You want to be good enough? You want to be pleasing in the sight of the Lord? You know what he says? Place your faith in me. Because what Jesus has already done is enough. He's fulfilled it all. He's offered relationship. He's going back to the Mount Sinai, and he's saying, remember that time you were too scared to come up? Well, what Jesus did, he broke down the mediator, and he says, the priesthood is now. You don't need a priest on your behalf. You need relationship with me to go out into the world and make more and more our community and our world look like the world that Jesus has in mind to come. Amen? Can we pray this morning?